The most important question that you will ever wrestle with, that I will ever wrestle with, is the question of does God exist? There, there's no more important question that you will ever ask and attempt to answer than that question right there, does God exist? Uh, statistically speaking, over 70% of the people who live on this planet answer that with an affirmative. They say, yes, I believe that God exists. I believe there's something transcendent outside of myself, greater than myself. I'm not sure if it's personal, impersonal force, uh, but yes, if you're asking me, do I believe if God exists, I believe that God exists. And statistically speaking, that would be many of us. And for some of you, maybe you've not made up your mind yet, but that is the most important question you will ever ask and answer, does God God exist. But the second most important uh, question that you will ever attempt to answer is the follow-up to that question. And if you answer, yes, I believe that God, some God, some type of God exists. I believe in something outside of myself. Then the follow-up question to that is this right here. Then what is God like? If God exists, then what is God like? If I believe that God exists, then is he personal? Is he impersonal? Uh, what, is, what are the characteristics of this God? What's the personality of this God? What is God like? And every single one of you, you have an answer to that question, whether you think so or not, because there are things that roll into your heart and there are things that roll across your mind whenever you think about this question, what is God like? And your answer to this question has a lot to do with your past and it has some to do with your present. It has to do with the family you grew up in, whether or not you were reared in the church or outside of the church. It has to do with that freshman class you took at college and you were blown away at some of the worldviews of the people that you were introduced to and you never thought about that before, or you'd never heard about that before and you read some things and maybe it shook your faith, maybe you left your faith. But so much of this answer comes from the life that you have lived and the life that you are living now. Because every single one of us that believe that God exists, we have some answer to this question, what is God like? Now, for some of you, uh, when you think about the answer to this question, the first thing that comes to your mind is that I believe God's angry because of the church that you grew up in. Somebody like me would get up and they'd have a big Bible and they'd stand behind a big wooden box and, and they would shout about God and yell about God and they would look angry and they would turn red and they would get sweaty and they'd take their fists and they'd beat, you know, that big wooden podium that they were talking behind and they'd start talking about hell and fire and, you know, damnation and brimstone and everybody was cheering and hooting and hollering like it was their idea of a perfect day at the park, you know, hellfire, brimstone, God's idea of a great picnic and it was just disconnecting for you because everybody in the church seemed angry about something and so you assume that God must be angry and you assume that God gets angry every time you mess up and if you're anything like me you know that you mess up all the time so God must just be perpetually angry. God is angry and that's how you would answer the question. For some of you, you would say, you know, I've read the Bible, right? I've read the Bible. I may be one of the few people that have read the Bible and I read the Bible and that Old Testament messed me up. I read it and I'm just telling you, God seems awfully violent to me. He seems a bit moody to me. Uh, he's a little bit pro-war for my politics. And, and I listen and I watch, I've watched movies about the Bible, I've read the Bible, and I'm just telling you, God is a little too violent for my taste because that's what I think about when I think about God. I just think about this Old Testament God that I can't shake off of me. I just think of God being violent. And then for some of you, when you think about God, you think of a God who's just not interested. He's just not interested. Because once upon a time, you prayed for God to get involved in your life. You prayed for God to do something. You prayed for God to heal someone. You prayed for someone not to die. You prayed for something not to happen again. And what happened? The thing that you prayed not to happen. 
And you concluded that God just isn't interested in your life. And you give that the benefit of the doubt that at best, he's just not interested. At the very worst, he's just cruel. Because who would do that? Who would not answer a prayer so simplistic that is so seemingly filled with good things? Why would God not do that? And you just think that God's not interested in you or God's cruel. For some of you, you think that God is confusing. Uh, because you really can't figure God out. And the moment you think you have God figured out, somebody says something about God and you're like, well, that flies in the face of everything I've ever heard about God. And so this whole thing about God is just so confusing because he seems to be this way over here and he seems to be this way over there. And it's just confusing to me. Then there are some among us that if you answer the question, what is God like? You would say that he's good. That even in the midst of bad, that God is good. And that God can take the bad going on around us and the bad going on within us, and God can turn it for good because you believe that God is good. For some of you, you would say, I believe God is patient because I, I've tested his patience, and, and I know my story, and, and God has been so patient with me, and you would answer that particular question with saying, hey, I believe God is patient. For some of you, you would say, when I think about God, I think God is like a father because you know when we're supposed to pray, we're supposed to pray our father who are in heaven. So when I think about God, I think about a father the way that he is with his sons or his daughters. Uh, some of you, based on the type of church you grew up in, when you think about God, you think holy, you think perfect, you think righteous, you think that God is light and in him there is no darkness whatsoever. And that's true. And that's the first thing that comes to your mind. For others of you, you think God is powerful. Nothing is impossible. He's a God of miracles. And it goes on and on and on and on. This is a question we have to wrestle with. What is God like? At some point in your life, you will have to answer this question for you, maybe at the request of someone else, but what is God like? One of Jesus' earliest followers, a fisherman from Galilee, a guy by the name of John, John wrestled with this very question. What is God like? John was part of the inner circle of Jesus with Peter, James, and John. That means he saw more and heard more than all the other disciples. He had special access at times to things that Jesus said and things that Jesus did. He was part of the inner circle. He heard Jesus' sermons. He watched Jesus perform miracles. He observed how Jesus interacted with people, how Jesus talked to people, how Jesus treated people, what Jesus said to people when he looked them in the face, and even what Jesus said about people when they walked away. He observed all of that. He saw how Jesus interacted with people. He watched Jesus die on the cross, and a few days later, he became an eyewitness of Jesus' resurrection from the dead. This guy, John, this fisherman from Galilee, he became one of the leaders in the New Testament church. He became a pastor in the great city of Ephesus. Matter of fact, he penned one of four biographies that are contained in the New Testament of Jesus's life. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and the biography of Jesus that bears his name, John. So John is a really big deal, who saw a lot and heard a lot. He wrote one of the four gospels, one of the four biographies of Jesus. And then just a few years after he wrote the biographies of Jesus and a few years before that he would ultimately be captured by the Roman emperor Domitian. And after he's arrested, he's gonna be sent to a prison colony on the island, island called Patmos. But before all of that takes place, shortly before that, he writes three letters. And we also have those three letters preserved for us in the New Testament. And they bear his name as well, 1 John, 2 John, and 3 John. And when you read those letters, it's as if when we read between the lines and we think long enough, it's almost as if John is wrestling before us with this question of what is God like? And he feels compelled 
to try to answer this question once and for all for himself and once and for all for all the Christians and followers of Jesus and non-followers of Jesus that may perhaps read his letters in the years and the generations to come. So as he thinks about what he has learned about God from Jesus, when he thinks about what he's learned about the Father from the Son, because he was there that night in the upper room when Jesus was arrested and betrayed by Judas ultimately, later on that night, he was there when Jesus said, when you've seen me, you have seen the Father. In other words, Jesus said, if you wanna know what God is like, then look at me. Jesus said, if you wanna know what God sounds like, then listen to me. If you wanna know how God feels about people, then pay attention to how I feel about people. If you wanna know what God's opinion is on this or that, then why don't you take a look at me because when you've seen me, you have seen the Father. And so as Jesus taught John about the Father, years later, John is thinking about what he has learned about the Father from the Son. And as he's trying to write down the perfect description, the most succinct description of God, the, the, the description of God that sums up all other descriptions of God, he has a moment of clarity. And he takes up his pen and as any good writer will do, he weighs the words, he plays with the phrases, and then he begins to write what he learned about God from God's son, Jesus of Nazareth. And this is what he said, God is love. Matter of fact, let's all just say that together. God is love. John said, I don't know how to describe it any more clearly than that. In all the adjectives and all the nouns that I could come up with, but as one who had a front row seat to the Son of God, the Savior of the world, as one who walked beside of him, behind him, listened to him, observed him, as the one who reached out and touched the one who said, when you've seen me, you've seen the Father. The thing that I've learned about God more than anything else from Jesus is this, that God is love, that God is the essence of love that God is the perfect expression of love, that he is the embodiment of love, that at the very epicenter of God's character, if you wanna know what is at the very heart of what makes God, God, John says, the only way I know how to describe it is by saying that God is love. And that means that everything that is true of love is also true of God. And so John, he pictures for us In his writings, years before he will die, just a few years before he will die, he pictures for us this idea of God, this image of God that you should think of first when you think of what God is like. What is God like, John says? I'll tell you what he's like. God is love. And he paints for us a picture of a God who knows no bounds to his love. There's no boundaries to his love. There's no place that you can go to escape the love of God, John says. That's what God is like. His love is unconditional. His love does not come with strings attached. There are no strings attached to this love. This is not to be earned. This is not to work hard in order to keep or to stay in the good graces of. No, this is the unconditional, no strings attached love of God. And this is so hard for us to understand because we are capable of love, but we are only capable of loving imperfectly. But John's talking about the only one who has ever been capable of loving perfectly. And he says, when I saw Jesus love people, I saw a reflection of God. 
And the only thing that I know to tell you is that God is love. His love is unconditional. There's no boundaries. It's boundless. And this is the thing that sets God apart from every other God of any other religion. Matter of fact, only Christianity does the unthinkable by making the love of God unconditional. No other worldview, no other religious leader, no other holy man, no other holy book has ever, ever presented to humanity a picture of God who loves everyone unconditionally. It was absolutely unheard of. And that's what set Christianity apart from every other religion. An unconditional love of God was unheard of. Nobody had thought of such a thing. Matter of fact, John, he was raised to be religious. He was raised within Judaism. And even within Judaism, they may have believed that God did love, but they did not believe that God loved everyone. They believed that God loved Jewish people, <laughs> but not all Jewish people. They believed that God loved Jewish people who kept the rules. And those who were Jewish and weren't so good at keeping the rules, God did not so much love them. God loved rule keepers, but God didn't so much love rule breakers. That's the reason that the temple would excommunicate you. They would bar you from attending worship because God had no place for people who broke the rules. If you had certain professions, if you were guilty of certain behaviors, God had no place for people like that. But something changed in John's ideology. Something changed in his worldview that he was raised to believe in a God of conditional love. That now all of a sudden he will spend the rest of his life talking about a God of unconditional love. That God loves all of us collectively, yet God loves each of us individually, but he loves every single one of us, most important of all, unconditionally. And if that's true, if it's true, then this is what that means. It means that there's nothing that you can do. There's nothing that you can do to make God love you more and there's nothing that you can do to make God love you less. Think about that for a moment. Think about if this is really true. If this is really true that you can't make God love you more no matter how well you behave, no matter how many rules you keep, and if it's really true that you can't make God love you less because of the things you do or don't do. Think about the implications of that. Think about how revolutionary that is. Think about how this flies in the face of what we even want to be true. We think that this is not rational, this is not logical because this is how we love. And we place upon our ideas of God, our experience of love. And there seems to be things in the way that we love that can make people be more lovable or can make people seem more unlovable. But John says, don't confuse your imperfect ability to love with God's perfect ability to love you. If you wanna know what God is like, God is love. And if this is true, that means that no matter what you have done and no matter who you are, God loves you. Think about that. Think about that may, how that may fly in the face of everything you've ever heard about the Jesus of Christianity, the God of Christianity. That no matter what you've done or no matter who you are, God loves you. That God loves all of us with all of our baggage, all of our doubts, our anger, our questions our insecurities, our pride, our arrogance, our self-sufficiencies. That means that in the midst of all of that mess, God loves us still. It means that God loves you and God loves me just the way you are, not the way you're supposed to be because none of us will ever be the way we're supposed to be in this life. Imagine if this is truly true. 
that God loves you even when you have a hard time loving yourself. Even when you have a hard time looking in the mirror and you know your story, you know your past, you know your failures, and even when you can't hardly even stomach yourself, much less love yourself, God loves you even when you don't love you. And God loves you even when you feel like no one else in your life loves you. If this is all true, it means that God loves us not because of who we are, but because of who he is. And this changes everything. If it's true that God loves us, it can't be because of who we are. It must be because of who he is. And John says, that's why I want you to not miss this. God is love. It's the essence, the expression, the embodiment of love. Everything you think about love, everything you know to be true about love, it is true of God and so much more because you can only understand such a small, imperfect piece of love from your perspective, but God is perfect love. And that's the reason Jesus looked at his disciples and said, okay, here's the most important thing you can do. I want you to go love others the way that I've loved you. Why did Jesus say that? Why did he say that the most important thing is for you to go love other people? If you're a Jesus follower, I want you to go love other people. I want you to love those who are unlovable, I want you to forgive those who've done the unforgivable. Why? Because Jesus knew that the most perfect expression of God in this life is when we love one another. And when we forgive the unforgivable, and when we love the seemingly unlovable, we give off the clearest reflection of God that this world will ever know. And when we love people that way, it reflects for them and for us the way that God has loved us and he loved us in yet a greater way than our capacity to love each other. That's the reason Jesus told stories about a father. And he said, when you think about God, think about a father whose son went off into a far country and he went out and he broke all the rules. And when he got to the bottom, when he had nothing else to lose and everything to gain, he decided that he's gonna go back home. And when he went back home, that father was there with his arms wide open. And he didn't look at his son and say, I demand an explanation. He didn't say, I told you so. He didn't give him a guilt trip. He didn't do any of those things. He said, hey, somebody kill the fatted calf. Bring this boy some sandals and put a ring on his feet because my son has come home. Because God is love. And every, every sermon and story in some way was pointing us to this type of God. That's the reason Jesus ate with the excluded, the ones that the temple had barred, the, the people that religion had no place for. Jesus hung out with them and Jesus loved being with them and they loved being with Jesus. That's the reason Jesus went to Samaria. He hung out by a well to meet a promiscuous woman who had a past and lots of skeletons in the closet because he went over there to remind her that even though you're having a hard time loving you, and even though you're keeping score, God's not. And God loves you just as you are. Because Jesus pointed us over and over again to a God who is love. Jesus points us to the only God man has ever heard of that loves sinners. The world had never heard of such a thing. Religion had never offered such a message that there's a God in heaven who loves sinners. No, there's a God in heaven who loves the good people. There is a God in heaven who loves the righteous. 
But no, Jesus showed up and pointed us to a God who loved sinners. And Jesus was never more clear about this than one particular night when he spoke to a religious man. A religious man who had the wrong idea of God. That when he thought about God, this man by the name of Nicodemus, he thought that God loved best those who kept the most rules. That God loved most those who were best at keeping the rules. That God was a scorekeeper, that God tallied up the points at the end of the day to decide, I love them, I don't love them, I accept them, I don't accept them. And Nicodemus, this religious man who had lots of questions, he came to Jesus at night and they had an incredible conversation. But in the midst of that conversation, Jesus brings Nicodemus and all of us to the most important truth that we will ever know about God. It was the thing that Nicodemus didn't know about God. It's the thing that many of us don't know about God. It's the thing that the church has misrepresented about God, perhaps, in some circles. He looks at Nicodemus and he says words that have been etched on our hearts and minds that the world has never been able to forget. And this is what Jesus said that night as he points us to a God whose essence and expression and embodiment is love. He said this, for God... For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that he loved us collectively yet individually. He doesn't call us by our labels, but he calls us by our names. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whosoever, not a select group of people, but whosoever believes, not behaves, but believes that God loved the world so much he didn't make it about the thing that we couldn't do Talk about rigging the game. If God would have said, whoever behaves, who's really good at that? Well, say some people are, no, they're just really good at pretending to behave. <laughs> he could have made it about whosoever behaves. That's what religion loves to make it about. That's what the church even tries to make it about. But Jesus, the one that we follow says, when you think about God, think about the one who so loved the world that he gave his son that whosoever believes should not perish but have eternal life. For this God, that you need to have an understanding of what he's like. He did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. He didn't come to beat you down, he came to lift you up. He didn't come to make you feel guilty, he came to make you feel loved. Loved by God, unconditionally loved by God. He didn't come to condemn the world, but he came to save the world. He says, I want you to think about God who saw all of us drowning and we didn't know how to swim. And when we were drowning and we didn't know how to swim and we were stranded without the ability to help ourselves, we couldn't even help each other. God intervened in order not to condemn us, but to save us, to save us from our sins to save us from ourselves, to save us from the pain and the regret, the destruction and the ultimate death that always comes along with sin. The reason that John said God is love, the reason that Jesus through what he said and what he did is always pointing us to this God who is love is because God created each one of us, the thumbprint of God on our soul is the fact that we all want to be loved. Now, you may not want to admit it. Guys, you may not talk about it. But God created you and the thumbprint of God on your life is that we all want to be loved. 
And whenever we see love, we are drawn to it. Whenever we see love, we are attracted to it. Whenever we see love expressed in some way, it causes us to take a step in that direction because the thumbprint of God on your heart and my heart is that we wanna be loved. And whenever we see love, whether we think so in these terms or not, the reason that we are drawn to it is because we are the creation and he is the creator and in the expression of love in our everyday lives that we are drawn to, we are ultimately drawn to the reflection of God in those acts of love. It's hard to define love, but we know love when we see it. And Jesus painted this picture of God because you and I will never know how much someone cares about us. You will never know how much someone cares about you until you see how much they are willing to sacrifice for you. Love requires a sacrifice. And whenever we see someone choose to love, because love is not a feeling, it is not something you stumble into, it is not something you fall in and out of. Love is a choice and when we see someone choose to love, and when we see someone who chooses to sacrifice themselves for the benefit and the sake of another person, we are drawn to that. Why are we drawn to that? Because in that expression, we see the reflection of God, even when we don't think about it in those terms. Whenever we see someone put themselves in front of someone, we are repelled by it. Whenever we see someone who puts someone else as more important than themselves, we are attracted to that. Why? because it is the reflection of God that we are drawn to. See, I could try to tell you what love is, and Jesus could have spent his time trying to describe what love is, but he knew that for love to be known, love must be shown. That for love to be known, love must be shown, that we can't always describe it, but we know when we see it. And when we see it, we're drawn to it, because in that is a reflection of God's love for all of us. I was introduced to a story of this type of love about a year ago in one of the small groups here at the Creek Church. And I wanna share you this story, share with you this story of love so that when we see it, we can better understand this type of love that is the epitome of who God is. Let me share this story with you. When you hold your child for the first time, there's nothing on earth that can prepare you for the love that you feel for your children. And I just remember the first day that she was born because I loved her so much and I had waited so long for her. And I'm so grateful that he gave me her because I had no idea what would be ahead for us. I had this precious six-month-old baby, and I was going to be pregnant any day. My husband and I were actively trying to get pregnant again um, because, you know, there's nothing like a baby, and I just wanted to continue to do it, probably to follow in the footsteps of my sister, who has four at home, and of my mom, who had three of us in three years. I went to see my family, I think, um, sometime in the latter part of March. She came to visit and she said, I look like a battered wife. 
because she had some bruises on her legs. And she said um, that it was from the car seat, carrying the car seat and it bouncing up and down and hitting her. And she went to the bathroom and she was just changing clothes for the evening. And I noticed that she had bruises all over her. And I said, Whitney, I think that you need some blood work because something's not right. This is the nurse coming out in her. She said, I don't want to scare you, but you need to go get your blood work drawn. So on April Fool's Day, uh, 2015, um, I got a phone call from my doctor. And he's a family friend of ours. And he said, uh, Whitney, he called me on the phone. He said, Whitney, where's Robert? And I said, why, am I, am I going to die or something? And he said, uh, you, you and your husband need to come straight to the hospital right away. So she called me, and she said, um, I think it's really serious. So I immediately started packing my clothes and my kids' clothes, and we came to Tennessee, and so when she had the diagnosis, we were here. Uh, I was diagnosed with CML leukemia, and it's a chronic leukemia, which um, I will... Um, unless God chooses to heal me, I will have for the rest of my life. The doctor said the good news is, is you have, if you're going to have leukemia, this is the kind you want. But the bad part was that she wasn't going to be able to have children. That was the most devastating part for her. At the time when they said you have to start treatment right away, I absolutely refused. And I said, I'm not doing anything until I have my eggs retrieved because I want more children. She went through a three-month process of trying to get her eggs retrieved, but my sister was so sick at the time when they were retrieving eggs that um, it just was not likely that the egg would be a success. And she would not take her leukemia medication because her goal was to have another child. You know, God gave me that passion and, and the love for my child, and I just could not let it go. The leukemia, no big deal. Losing my hip was not fun and it was very painful, but I was still so focused on what on what I felt like was supposed to happen. It's so hard when someone says that you can't have more children. And I just wasn't ready to stop trying. I was devastated for her because I had four children at home of my own, and I know the dream, you know, I, I got to live it, and so, and so I knew the desperation that she felt, and that's why it was so immediate in my heart and mind that I can do this, I've been pregnant, I, I can, this is the least I could do, and that, for me, it was a way that I could help her. It was the only thing that I could think of that I could do to help her. My sister said, I'll have a baby for you. When she suggested this, I said, Lee, this is it. I love the concept of, of you wanting to carry my next baby, but there's a major problem. You have four children and a husband that needs you, and it's just not possible. I did not want her to do it at first because I was worried for her. She's not a young mother, and I, I didn't want her to take the risk. Because of my age, the odds, the doctor said the odds were really low. I think it was 10% or less. She really wanted to do this, and, and, and most importantly, we wanted to make sure that, the, that our husbands were both okay with it. I mean, I love Whitney, too. We all 
love Whitney and Robert and each other. And as long as the doctor said that Lee would be safe, why not give such a gift? I realized she was sincere. She really wanted to do this. This was really something that, you know, that it's sheer love. I mean, that's all it really boils down to is just sheer love and absolute, um, you know, just love for your, your sibling, love for your family, and, and wanting to, to do what her sister couldn't do. And I, I saw that in her. And so we went forward from there. So when we started the process and it failed the first two times. I had really lost hope. And then on the third time, I remember my sister looked over at Robert and said, I just want you to know if, because the chances are so low, 10 to 15% chance, I'm 39. If I get pregnant, you need to fully understand and acknowledge that this came from God. This child will be our miracle. And I almost, for a second, just put it out of my mind. And one of my girlfriends said, have you taken a pregnancy test yet? And I said, no, I, it, it can wait. I have pregnancy tests. And so I took one and I laid it down and walked away. And I came back in the room and my knees just about came out from under me. She called and said, hey, sissy. And I was like, hey, what are you doing? She's like, well, I'm just sitting here. I'm just pregnant. And I was like, whatever, you know. And she said, Whitney, I'm gonna send you the pregnancy test. I'm pregnant. And she wanted me to be very excited. And she's like, Whitney, you don't even seem excited about this baby. And I said, well, if you've been through what I've been through, you just know that anything can happen. And I love you so much, Lee. And I, I'm so overwhelmed that you would do this. I'm so afraid that you're gonna call me and give me some news that I'm preparing myself now to be able to handle. So, you know, with each month, she kept getting bigger and bigger and more and more and more pregnant. And here we are. There have been nights that I have laid in bed and felt him moving and been very tearful because biologically, he's mine. Even though he's my sister and Robert's, um, he is partially in my heart, always gonna be, you know, very special. And so I've thought, you know, how hard is this gonna be to walk away from the hospital and say goodbye? Not goodbye, but there's only a, one more night that I get to lay there and feel that. So uh, that's been hard. But it is so worth it. And I can't wait to say goodbye to him and let him go to his mama. Because it's the answered prayer. It's what we all begged for. We were at church and on the screen it popped up and it said, you will never regret what love bids you to give away. And I read it over and over and over and I thought, there is no way that that says that because I felt like it was intended solely for me in that moment because I needed to see that. And it just made so much sense because I will never regret this. And it has been done out of love. 
you know, to be as nine months pregnant with four children, and it's just, it is the, the, the magnitude of commitment and um, work, stress, pain, suffering, you know, swollen feet, but because her love for me is, is so unconditional, she, she chose to do this for us. And when we all get to meet the baby tomorrow, I feel like this baby, even though he has very unusual um, conception circumstances, he has twice as many people to love him and to cherish him. And one day when he looks back at our story and sees the video of this, um, I hope he'll know that he was loved from the very beginning. There's a reason why we love stories like that. And it's just not because that it involves a baby and a mother who prayed for a baby. And it's just not because of Whitney and Lee and the love that they have for each other and the family and the love that we see in that family. But more than that, the reason we're moved, the reason that we are drawn into stories like that because in there is the reflection of God. That God loves us in such a greater way. That we long to be loved. And when we see it, we're drawn to it. C.S. Lewis said that every beautiful story is beautiful because it ultimately points us to the greatest story of all. And wherever we find beauty, wherever we find love, wherever we see it, it points us to the greater story that God chose to love us. That he put himself at risk. He put his life on the line and he did the unthinkable, the unexpected, the irrational, the illogical. And he loved to such a degree that he was willing to risk all. And inside every great story of love, there are shadows, there are whispers, there are echoes of God's love for you. And that's why we're drawn to it. Because John says, God is love and nobody wrote more about love than John because perhaps no one knew as much about love as John because he saw it up close and personal he saw the essence the expression the embodiment of love 
in our Savior. And John, a few years before he dies, he says, this is how, this is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we loved God. Matter of fact, we didn't love God. We had gone rogue. We had rebelled. We disobeyed. We loved ourselves. We loved other things. It wasn't because we loved him, but that he loved us. And that he sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. That in some way that we will never understand, that Jesus lived a life that we could never live. He lived perfectly and he died on the cross in our place. He absorbed the full punishment of our sin. He paid a debt that we could not pay even though it was a debt that he did not owe. And he that knew no sin became sin for us that we could be right with God. That he took your sin and my sin and there on the cross made a way that we could be forgiven freely and completely this is how we know because how else would we have ever known how else would we have ever known that he loved us if he had not sent Jesus to die for us and there on the cross as Jesus hung there bleeding and dying in a place of perfect love. He said, even now, I could call legions of angels to save me. But in that moment, he chose love. And instead of saving himself, he decided to save us perfect picture of love that draws us in and points us to a God who is love. And he died for us so that you would never have to doubt it. So that you would never have to question that no matter what you do or where you go, you'll never have to wonder, does he love me? You'll never have to wonder, am I good enough or am I too bad? You'll never have to wonder because he proved it on the cross. In the New Testament, says this, that God demonstrated his love for us in this while, in our mess, at our worst, he died for us. How else would we have ever known that there was a God in heaven who loved us? God loves me, this I know, for the cross tells me so. So no matter who you are and no matter what you've done, because of what he did for you, you'll never have to question, does he love me? Love demands a sacrifice. And the only way that God could prove his love for you was to die for you. And here's the fact of the matter. God has never regretted what love bid him to give away. He's never regretted the cost of loving you. Augustine said that he loves all of us as though there is but one of us. Jeremiah said he's loved us with an everlasting love. Paul said that nothing will ever be able to separate us from this love. And Jesus himself said, I will love you to the very end. And in the meantime, you may be unrighteous, you may be unwise, you may be unfaithful, you may be unwilling, but you 
will never be unloved. Let's bow our heads. Let's close our eyes. What if it's true? What if it's true that he loves you just the way that you are? What if it's true that there's nothing you can do to make him love you more? There's nothing you can do to make him love you less. What if it's true that you can be forgiven? What if it's true that you can have a better life, an eternal life? What if it's true that your past can be redeemed and your future secure? What if it's true that you can have a new life with new purpose and direction? What if it's true that in the lapses and the relapses and the stumbles and the perpetual falling down that he loves you through it all? What if it's if even if you walk away, even if you wander into a far country, that even there he still loves you? Can you believe it? Not so much that he loves the person beside of you as much as you can believe that he loves you. Father, speak to our hearts in this moment. Remind us of the cross where you proved your love for us. How else would we have ever known that you loved us?